Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Eden Brook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey guys, welcome back. My special guest today is Eric Calver. Eric wears multiple hats in the industry. He's been playing drums for over 20 years, most recently seen in the Todd Glass Netflix comedy special, Act Happy. After graduating from Berklee College of Music in Boston with degrees in arranging and performance, he moved to LA and began working as a composer's assistant and orchestrator. He has orchestrated on the films Fast Five, Battle Los Angeles, which I love personally, and Skyline, and has done copyist work for orchestrator and conductor James Sale for the movie 21 Jump Street and Snuffy Walden for the shows Nashville and Under the Dome. Eric is also a published arranger through Alfred Music Publishing. He then moved into music supervision at Music and Strategy, working on ads and branding for Ford, Netflix, Nest, and many more. Eric is now the music supervisor at Activision Blizzard, working on games such as Call of Duty, Guitar Hero, and Spyro the Dragon. Please enjoy our conversation today. All right, well, welcome everybody, and I want to welcome Mr. Eric Calver to the show. Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Marty? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for joining me and for our audience and to hear your story and get some of your amazing expertise at what all you've done throughout your career in music. I'm grateful that you've taken the time to be here. Of course. Good to be here. So I think you and I technically uh, have known each other for about a year or year and a half now, or at least I've known of each other and I've talked over email. So for yeah. our audience, we've never actually met in person, <laughs> but we've uh, talked a lot over email for the past year or so, because when you and I first met, I was in a course uh, by a company called Catch the Moon Music, uh, which does music for TV uh, and film sync. And so throughout that course, uh, we had visitors come on and talk about you know, getting into doing music for TV and film and ads and all that good stuff. And you are one of the um, one of the guests who came on to talk with us way back a year or so ago. And so I reached out to you afterwards, and you were very kind to me, and were able to give some information and some advice on sending music to ad agencies and trying to get my foot in the door with all of those things. And so I'm very grateful for that to begin. So thank you for for that and kicking off that relationship with us. Of course. Yeah. Just, just trying to do the best I can to help people. Yeah. It's awesome. It's been a, it's been great, great advice and it's been very helpful for me uh, trying to get in 
more deep into the the sync licensing aspect of music. So, but what I want to do right now, I want to start off. Let's go back to when you were a kid, and uh-huh. from what you've told me a little bit, and in your bio, it says that you were raised by a family of magicians. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> yeah. So, enlighten us on how how that works. So, <laughs> well, so my parents uh, have been entertainers for my entire life. Uh, so I'll, I'll take it back even more. So my great grandfather, so my father's grandfather was an assistant to Harry Houdini back in the oh, day. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, so whenever, uh, Houdini would come to new England, which is I'm, I'm from Rhode Island. Uh, a lot of my extended families from Massachusetts. So whenever Houdini would come around to Massachusetts, uh, my great grandfather was a sheet metal worker and helped build some of the props that Houdini would use when he was coming through town. So wow. uh, while doing that, he picked up the art of magic, just learning tricks from Houdini's crew and whatnot. And I may or may not be getting some of these facts right, but this is generally what I've heard. <laughs> the over general the idea. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so my great-grandfather, his daughter, which is my father's mother, was also a singer. She was uh, a USO touring singer, nightclub singer. Uh, she was on, this is, <laughs> this is dating me. It might even date you, Marty, and older. But there was a show before American Idol back in the 40s and 50s called Major Bo's Amateur Hour. Okay. Which is, yeah, an old radio show, kind of like a variety show. And my grandmother was a guest on that show, and she was in her teens. Okay. And it was a popular show back in the day. She also danced with uh, Rudolph Valentino, a uh, famous dancer back in the day. And so I'm coming from entertainment people from way before I was born. Yeah, so that's crazy. Yeah. So when my great grandfather was, you know, with my father, when he was around five, he started to teach my dad some magic tricks. And my, not only was he a sheet metal worker, my great grandfather, but he was also a mathematician and was just really good with numbers and uh, really drilled my dad on magic and mathematics and science and all the above. So my dad uh, got the magic bug when he was five, naturally, based on his family. And from five to now, he's in his 60s, he's been doing magic professionally for over 50 years. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so... That's that's awesome. Yeah, he, uh, he was known as Rhode Island's youngest magician back in the day. And then over time, he was doing more and more work uh, in local theater, different magic shows around the country. Uh, he met my mother when she was a stage manager on a show in Rhode Island and was introduced by my dad's friend to him. And then they did magic together around the country. They did Carnival Cruise Lines for a few years. Um, And they were married for 10 years, and then they had me, and then my sister five years later. So I was already coming into an entertainment family. Yeah. That's what they were doing. And so do you know know magic as well? So to learn the craft of that? I I did. I used to do it from around age five or six, and I dropped off around like 13, 13 or 14. Um, Mm. I was my father's assistant for a lot of that stuff. And, you know, being a child younger than 10 for, you know, as an assistant for your father, you're not doing too much. You're, you're doing right. you know, a little bit for him, but I'm also at a young age, learning stage presence, learning what to say, what not to say at a very young age. 
Right. And uh, I was on TV with my dad for about three years in Rhode Island. There was, uh, you know, the famous Bozo the Clown with the white face, red hair, right. yep. uh, blue outfit. There's the Chicago Bozo. There's probably a lot of Bozos, <laughs> uh, both <laughs> literally Bozo the Clown and Bozos in the world. But uh, there was a Bozo in uh, Massachusetts in New England. And my father and I had a segment on that show. We filmed like maybe 15 to 20 of them. And then they would, you know, release one a week with, with the episodes. So I was on TV for three years as the amazing Eric. That was my stage name. And it's not now? You're not used to going uh, by that? Uh, sometimes people break that yeah. out. Yeah, the amazing but, uh, Eric. Yeah, so I, it's funny. I have a, I posted a, a YouTube video of me like with some clips from that show. And that maybe has like 1,500 views, but only because I've been showing people that clip. Yeah. No, no one's looking for it. It's just me showing it 1,500 well, times. Well, ho- hopefully once people listen to this episode, they'll go hunt that down and that will, <laughs> that will jump up dramatically. Yeah. I want to go see this now. <laughs> if you look for uh, the amazing Eric and Bozo together. Just on see, YouTube. On YouTube. you'll. Uh, there's probably no other link to that besides this video so you'll you'll hear uh hi i'm bruce calver and this is the amazing eric so you'll awesome you'll check that out so yeah i i was doing magic for the beginning of my life like learning the tricks learning stage presence and uh not until i was about maybe nine or ten did i learn about the beatles um and before that honestly i grew up on musical theater music i didn't grow up on pop music at all Sure. Um, I mean, like, sure, Disney movies, I guess you'd consider that pop. But I was raised with with musical theater because that's where my parents came from, you know, doing magic and, and doing theater. So by the time I was nine or 10, I learned about the Beatles and then kind of was getting into what Ringo was doing, just thinking the drums were cool. And I saw the movie That Thing You Do, yep. uh, which is all about the drummer. And yes, sir. It's taught me a lot about music in general and life lessons and uh by the time i was about 12 or 13 i was kind of getting tired of being called the magic kid by kids in my class and preferred when they called me the drummer kid because that felt more of something that i was able to do not just they ever just did they ever just call you shades (laughs) um some people now call me shades that's my nickname in one of my bands but uh I wish they did. That w- that would have been cool. But uh, yeah, so I was I became the drummer kid, and that that really stuck with me. And I thought, well, I think I think I'm done with magic for now. I obviously respect it, and I respect the art, and have seen a lot over the years. But uh, that's when I got into drums. Okay, so that thing you do if if people have not seen that movie, that you need to go see that movie because, or you need to rent it or buy it or whatever because. For many, many musicians, that is a pinnacle, the pinnacle of, of musical movies for us, you know, that, that relates to, to music industry and just the lifestyle of what it's like to build up, build yourself up into the music business. You kind of see the rise and the fall within, you know, like an hour and a half (laughs) of a beat. Literally, like it's literally. It's the one, what a one hit wonder band, like what happens to them when they have the one hit wonder, how fast it comes together, how quickly it falls apart and how 
it yeah it is a one-hit wonder because it does not go anywhere else yep okay so you got into the drums because of that thing you do mm-hmm. and where did that lead you after you learned how to start playing the drums did you take lessons yeah so i, I took um <laughs> i was in the middle of uh and i'm not I wasn't a sports person growing up. I wasn't a little league person, but I did a soccer camp. I was in a musical theater production. I I acted for like a couple of years and like sang, but I was doing the theater thing, the soccer camp. And at the same time, I wanted to start drum lessons before I entered sixth grade. Mm -hmm. So I studied with a teacher locally, was learning how to read music and then joined the middle school concert band was playing snare drum learning from the alfred music snare drum books and uh played my first ever concert on on snare uh with the concert band and also was the drummer for the jazz band okay and it was like brand new to me uh i wasn't really nervous just excited to try something new and it was (laughs) i think it was the first time i ever learned how to play a syncopated beat Mm, uh the drums we were playing chameleon it's my first time hearing chameleon by herbie hancock and just the displacement of the kick drum where it wasn't just on one and three it was like eye-opening to me that you could do that where all of a sudden your limbs were not just at the same time they were at different times so that was yeah that was my first experience in sixth grade and and i was doing the talent shows with the magic uh i did some magic acts and stuff and played drums for jazz band and whatnot but uh those were my first experiences and then okay. high school was a whole different thing where all of a sudden i, I went into like i i called my old band teacher he was like a football coach he treated it like a sport and it was it was hard work and it just really amplified my music education that's cool so after high school you as you went into college you ended up going to berkeley correct yeah i went to berkeley college of music in boston okay so tell me a little bit about, uh, briefly about that experience and how that led you into more of what you're doing nowadays. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a long arc there. But So I went into Berkeley as a drummer. In my head, I thought, well, I'm going to be a professional drummer and just, just play all the time. That's all I'm going to do. And as I was taking classes, I was starting to learn a little bit more about arranging uh, for different instruments. And I had taken music theory in high school. So I was already well aware of, of what I was doing with that stuff more than just like a drummer who doesn't necessarily know that. So as I was taking the arranging classes, it started to really stick with me. And I also had to think when I was at school, you know, I came, I'm from Rhode Island. We're the smallest state in the country. I was an all state jazz band drummer, uh, but I was a big fish in a small pond. And then I'm going to Berkeley where I'm the small fish in a big pond. Right. And I started to think about, well, how how's anyone going to hire me? There's so many drummers here. Who's how am I going to stick out? So by doing the arranging, I realized that you, you know, there are drummers that know theory and whatnot, but I knew that many did not. And I felt that that could be an advantage for me to offer to do arrangements for people or write horn parts or write background vocals. And so my majors turned into both an arranging major and a performance major at school. Okay. And my work study job was playing drums for voice classes for the voice department, which uh, was an interesting experience, which actually helped me 
in the future with supervision. I didn't realize it until then. But what I had to do for some of the classes was that singers would bring in lead sheets. Uh, for those who don't know what a lead sheet is, it's basically uh, sheet music that's condensed. So it's easier to read uh, without having like 12 pages from a chord book. And the whole band can use the same sheet to read off of as opposed to making guitar part, a bass part, a drum part, a piano part. Okay. So I was kind of working a semi-unofficial teacher's assistant assisting these singers on how to write the charts. And they'd say to me, like, you know, I, I don't know how to notate this rhythm, but I want to do some kind of hip-hop beat. And I said, okay, well, if you don't know what it is, I want you to just beatbox it for me. And they said, well, that's embarrassing. I can't beatbox drums. And I said, you know, that's fine. I'll be able to pick it up if you just do it because of my knowledge. So they would beatbox something that doesn't sound anything like the drums or anything rhythmically satisfying. But I was able to pick it up and say, oh, is it like this? And they said, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Okay. And that kind of relates to how if I'm working with creatives who either know music or don't know music, but they're saying, I'm looking for a type of song that has like, and they could use words like boom, which is like such a <laughs> generic term. But they're like, I want something that booms and rises and falls and this and that. And I'd be able to interpret what they're saying, even though it's not musical. And that kind of helped back in college because, you know, like I was saying, we have the knowledge to do it right. so we can kind of decipher it. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. So once you got good at doing that and became known for arranging and then and also drumming, once you graduated from Berkeley, uh, did you immediately head out to LA from that point on? So my original plan was to not move out instantly. I was going to wait another year, build up some money, and just decide maybe in a year or so to move to LA. And my senior year, about, I want to say, two months before I was graduating, I went to LA with my father because uh, he was <laughs> he was actually in LA for a magic conference meeting because mm -hmm. he was uh, the president of the Society of American Magicians at the time. I just think that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically like he was a Dumbledore for yeah. for magicians. Okay. So so I was out there and I was visiting some friends of mine who had just graduated the year before. And they were saying how much they love LA. And, and I told them, I'm probably going to wait a year, build up some money. And he's, my friend said, no, you need to be out here now. All the jobs are going to be gone if you wait another year. So you got to get out here now. So I thought about it. I talked to some teachers and they all said, you should go as soon as you can. You got to get out there. It's, it's going to be way different than it is here. So within three months, I had to come up with a plan of, all right, where am I going to live? How am I going to save the money? How am I going to make money this summer? What am I going to do for work when I get to LA? Am I going to have a car? Like all this stuff. And then just went for it. So uh, in August of 09, I drove out here with a friend. And then he just came for the ride and flew back to Rhode Island. But we did it in three and a half days, which I don't recommend doing from rhode island to la because <laughs> yep. you have no time to explore you're just booking it right okay so you get to la what's your first job when you land in la so i got lucky um well okay so what happened was i was talking to some berkeley alumni people before i moved out here and i was applying for some jobs 
uh, while I was still in Rhode Island. And they said, like, that's great that you're applying, but no one's going to take you if you're not here already. You need to get out here and, you know, you need to be here for the jobs. So I knew I had to be there soon, but I didn't know how I was going to make money as soon as I got there. But I got lucky because my father knew someone who uh, was helping produce some award shows in Hollywood. And one of them was the Daytime Emmy Awards. And the producer knew that I was moving out. And she said, oh, great. Well, he could be a a PA for this production. And I didn't know what a PA was. I thought it was a personal assistant. I mean, it could be. Right. But it was a production assistant. Right. So what that entailed was a lot of uh, manual labor (laughs) of like, you know, moving chairs, moving sets, um, getting people to where they need to be. And so I had that my first week. I, I had that one job. And then I got lucky that I was able to do the job because they called me for like three more jobs. Okay. So between like August and November, I, I worked on some infomercials, some other award shows, um, the Hollywood Christmas Parade, just, just helping out behind the scenes. Is this all through the same company? All through the same company. So you did a few programs, uh, production assistant. And then, so how long were you doing those types of jobs before you moved on to something else? Uh, so I was doing the production assistant jobs for, for about three months or so. Okay. I uh, just trying to, to make my way uh, while looking for music jobs at the same right. time. Sure. Because I, I needed to do something, you know, to, <laughs> to buy the time. Cause, yeah, you to know, make money. Was, yeah, because, I mean, when, when you get here, jobs aren't necessarily waiting for you. They're being taken up by the person they need at that moment. Right. So at the same time, I was actually connected to some alumni from Berkeley. Like one was uh, an orchestrator and we were, we met once, but that he was like, well, I don't have any work right now. So, you know, I'll keep you posted if, if there's any work coming in. So with that, I knew I couldn't just wait for him because he may forget about me mm-hmm. in the next week. Now I don't necessarily recommend this technique. I, I would, now that I'm 10 years in LA, I would recommend something different. But what I did at the time was I emailed him once a week. I emailed him like every Wednesday, just say, hey, just checking in to see if you need any help. Right. That's all I said. And he was nice. Luckily, he was nice and not mean and just said like, oh, I'm good. Thanks for checking in. I did that for about a month and a half. And then he finally said, oh, hey, do you happen to know how to use Finale? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, well, I could use your help. So it led to something final. Sure, polite persistence. Yeah. Now, nowadays I'd probably do that a little bit differently where um, instead of doing it each week, I'd probably do it every couple of weeks or so, or maybe even once a month. So I think I was very lucky that the person I was talking to was very nice about it, but I'd probably lay back a bit (laughs) nowadays. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Yeah. So I was, so I, I did some copies work for him and I continued to do some copies work once in a while, but I still needed work. So and what does, co- for somebody listening, what does copyist work mean? What do, what do you do as a copyist? Copyist work has to do with the sheet music that's being played by an orchestra or a player. So what I would do is I would take maybe the master score that the orchestrator's working with and I would extract the parts from the master score using Finale. So if there were like 
flute parts and clarinet parts and violin parts or whatever, I would have to go into each part and clean it up once it's extracted from the main score. Cleaning it up, meaning like spacing of the notes, uh, making sure the notes make sense when you read them, cleaning up the uh, dynamics, uh, different crescendos and decrescendos, making sure everything isn't all over the place. Because when you extract from finale or any type of uh, music notation software, it's not necessarily clean when it comes out. So someone needs to make sure it's done correctly. If you don't, then you're basically giving a musician gibberish to read because it just won't be clear. What are they handing to you to clean up to begin with? So they're handing me a master score file from Finale. Okay. They'll write in Finale. I see. Yep. Or they'll extract, uh, I believe it's called an XML file from like Logic or GarageBand. Mm Mm-hmm. And basically tell me to clean that up based I, on the recording. I got you. Okay. Yeah. So they might already be writing the score in Finale, or they might extract uh, a file from their logic, which is really dirty MIDI notes, <laughs> music sure. notation. Yeah. And then you're cleaning that up okay. to, uh, to look like a score. Awesome. Yeah. Just in case anybody listening that's interested in being a copyist, wants to get into that or know more about it, I just want them to have a clear understanding of what what that terminology is and what that job entails. So that that's very helpful. Yeah, it's a very meticulous job. It's kind of like a like a proofreader for, you know, an editor. And who all wow. did you do that uh, do a copyist work for? I've done copyist work for James Sale. He's the orchestrator who uh, he used to be the orchestrator for Mark Mothersbaugh. He's also a composer on his own. Um, I've done it for Snuffy Walden. He did music for the Wonder Years. He did the Nashville series. He did the West Wing. I've done copies work for Alfred Music Publishing uh, when I did some arrangements for them and some other people as well. So how did you get into doing like the TV shows? How did you get that introduction into meeting them so that you could do work for them as a copyist? So that was kind of uh, a bit of a... phone tag with different people. So, you know, there's a lot of Berkeley alum out here in Hollywood because typically when you graduate Berkeley, you either go to New York, Nashville, Austin, or LA. So some of my friends had already made connections uh, working with some of these composers. And if they didn't have enough time to do that job and they knew that I could do this stuff, they would hit me up and say, hey, Eric, can you fill in for me doing this copyist job because I don't have enough time? Sure. So mm-hmm. it's, it's having your network of people, like-minded people and you know, who do the same kind of work as you, who you know, if you network with them and get along with them and they, they trust your work ethic, mm-hmm. that you can be recommended for jobs in the future. Yep, and that's something that I talk about all the time. I feel like I... I do this in every interview is it all comes back to relationships and trust. Yeah. My, my networking technique has definitely improved over the past 10 years. I remember back in the day when we'd have a networking event at Berkeley, all I did was just pass my card out instantly and just say, Oh, here's my card. Here's my card. Let me know if you need a drummer. Yeah. Let me know if you need this. Now, what I learned over time with that stuff is they may not necessarily hit you up with that because like I may not be on the top of their mind. So what I learned 
is, well, they'll be in the top of my mind if I get their card. So if I get their information, then I can do a follow-up the next day. Just be like, hey, man, so great to meet you last night. Um, You know, hope all's well. Here's some information about me if you want to know more. Yeah. But what I've also learned with networking is it's almost better to not talk about the thing you want to network about until it's brought up by the other person. Sure. Yeah, because you just want to... They want to. They want you to know them for them, not for what can you do for me. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I get that. Yeah, and it becomes a more natural relationship where some of people that I've networked with, we maybe have never spoken about music ever, or maybe like after the sixth hang, we've talked about music, mm-hmm. and then it just makes it so much more natural and easier if you have a common interest that's outside of music. Because, you know, if all you can talk about is music, then I, you know, I hope you have other things that you do because you don't want to get sick of the the music you're working on. Sure. I mean, we could sit and talk about music all night long and I love knowing all the stuff that you do. But to be honest, I would love to sit and talk about the magician stuff some more. Because <laughs> that to me is just so fascinating. You're probably probably sick of talking about that to people, but I, it's just such a fascinating thing to me. I'm like, I want to know more about your grandfather in and uh harry houdini <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but we won't we won't do that right now that people don't want to hear about that i, I appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so so to, to kind of circle back for a sec with with that stuff it, it all became the hang with the networking yeah. of uh you know getting that copyist work and that was more of like a a side thing i was doing it wasn't necessarily a full-time thing because i i still needed a full-time job mm-hmm. uh musically or or, i mean i didn't know what it was gonna be but it you know i i did everything from being a waiter at johnny rockets at hollywood and highland to being an extra on tv shows to teaching an after school music class that was way too far from my apartment once a week Mm -hmm. like i would drive like 35 miles to teach a class once a week right and in Uh, la that's what two hour drive in in la yeah (laughs) one way yeah, it was it was rough. And, and it was like a three o'clock class. So when I was done, it was like 4.30 and it was rush hour. And oh, goodness. Yeah, so I, I basically did everything I could to just make money and, and stay afloat. Um, but it took, it, yeah, it took a while. And then I finally got connected with a composer who was looking for an assistant. I did the interview. He seemed to like me. And, and it worked out where I, I started working with him uh, with Brian Tyler, who's the film composer. And, uh, he's worked on the Fast and Furious movies, the Avengers Age of Ultron, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, all that kind of stuff. So, so I worked. How did you get connected with him? Uh, through my alumni network. Uh, I think he was, he reached out to the Berkeley alumni people and looking for an assistant. Yeah. Yeah. It was as simple as that. Yeah. And, and uh, I was just going to say, that's see, those are little connections. Those are the types of things that that people listening wanting to get into um, any of these aspects of the industry are trying to figure out how do I make, how do I talk to the guy who works on the Age of Ultron or Fast and Furious? Well, you know, you don't just reach out to them. You can't just email or call them and they're going to answer the phone and talk to you. But because you said you're a Berkeley alumni and he's reaching out to to Berkeley saying, hey, I need somebody. 
to assist me. And because you're in that, that pool of people, then that's, that's your connection into him is through that, that avenue. Um, I think maybe just at the time he had heard that the, you know, uh, reputation of Berkeley students was good and he reached out. And to be honest, um, you know, I didn't study film scoring in school. I was a big fan of film scoring and composers, but I didn't study how to write it. And that wasn't necessarily the field I was trying to get into, but I needed a job and I wanted to learn. And since Hollywood is a film scoring town, uh, I applied for the job and I got it. And it was, it was definitely uh, eye opening for me because when you're an assistant to a composer, it's not necessarily a job where you're doing music the whole time. It, it, it depends on, on how you're being used. So my job was more of an administrative job mm-hmm. when I joined him. And, but that's also having to do with the fact that maybe he wasn't ready to trust me musically yet. And that's not just because of me personally. Like when you hire someone you know, straight out of college to be an assistant, you can't necessarily trust whether they're going to cut it musically right. to help as a composer. So I was doing errands. I was picking up laundry, picking up lunch, filling the fridge with food and drinks. And, you know, back in the day when I was young, I, there was a small part of me who thought like, this isn't the job, but honestly it is the job. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you do as an assistant. Like I learned stuff that, you know, they're not necessarily telling you at Berkeley that when you pick up a Starbucks order, this is how you should arrange the food when people come by or, you know, hospitality, like how to treat clients who are coming into the studio. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's something that's overlooked and you realize this is a life skill I need to know just for myself in the future. Right. So there's a certain arrangement that they want the food whenever they come in. Correct. It may just even be a weird personal preference from someone who wants it set a certain way. You know what I mean? It's just like this attention to detail is, is important. And that can make or break a relationship. Probably, yeah. Uh, oddly enough, it's like why? Why would the arrangement of food at a studio <laughs> really matter? But somebody, it it does for somebody. It does, and so if you can provide that and be excellent in these little small things that you're doing that make you know no sense to you because it has nothing to do with music, but it is part of the business. And if you can do that well, then that means the the person who has hired you that you're assisting, they can trust you with bigger things down the road. And that opens up these other opportunities for you. Exactly. And it kind of goes back to a thing that I even say when I'm hiring a musician where, you know, I don't care if you can play 32nd notes or 64th notes on guitar or piano or, you know, (laughs) play crazy. Yeah. But if you're not a solid person that I want to hang out with, because, you know, it's just not going to work. Sure. You you know, same thing. With with this in a way, like, yeah, I may have graduated from Berkeley and had a degree, but if I can't do a simple task of, of picking up a lunch, then it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know? So I was doing a mix of that, and then I was also uh, doing some copies work a little bit for him, but then I was kind of realizing that film scoring wasn't really my world uh, that I wanted, but I was still... Uh, even though I was moving on to something else, I was doing some orchestrating uh, for him as well. So I, I orchestrated a piece for 
uh, Fast Five, the fifth Fast and Furious movie. Nice. I worked on a movie called Skyline where I orchestrated a couple of cues. And so just to define what an orchestrator does, it's kind of in the similar world to being an arranger where uh, with orchestrating, I'm taking, like let's say for example, there's a violin part that's split in three or four parts or whatever. I'm basically arranging that part so if he didn't make the the divisi or the splits already i'm kind of deciding how to break up that chord okay that he created with the violin part or the horn part yep so that's what i was doing with that stuff but i i was realizing i kind of wanted to move on to something else so i went uh i found a job at alfred music publishing which is one of the main music education sheet music publishers and that was another situation where I had a friend from Berkeley who was already working there. And I told her, hey, I, I heard there's this job there uh, called the choral production editor. And what that meant uh, was I would take choral music and I would proofread it for grammatical and musical errors. Hmm. And that's that's another job where it's, it's semi-music related, but also administrative. Right. So... I was helping organizing the releases of the choral music, creating the covers with InDesign and editing the text. So with all that work, it was like a whole new type of job for me where it it was even more administrative than what I was doing for the film scoring assistant, uh, where I was helping with the releases of the choir music and learning about schedules uh how they release music and how they arrange music for choir and that's something that see i don't even think about that i hadn't even considered a choral production editor at all i just that's never even entered my mind obviously i've seen choral music books and somebody has to do that somebody has to put that out and it is music related so you know you are doing music you know you are in the music business by doing that it's just not something on the creative side as far as you know recording music or producing or things like that but there's more things in music that are business related than creative related anyway and a lot of people don't understand that i think most <laughs> people think you know you're listening to music on the radio or the cd or mp3 or whatever and you think of songwriters and maybe a producer who who records the music but beyond that a lot of people don't understand everything behind the scenes that makes those things possible. And that's all business related in music. And that's where the majority of the work comes from, really. Oh, yeah. And there, there's so much of that. And we'll we'll be getting to that soon. Yeah. But with, in this relation uh, to cheap music, yeah, there's someone that's got to check the work before sure. it's uh, you know, sent to the printers and whatnot. So, uh, so I was doing that job for... A little over two and a half years. Okay. Uh, but while doing that job, I I got really close with with some of the editors that I was working for, and told them what I studied at school and I was looking to do some arrangements. And so I got lucky just through my relationship, and again trusting me by doing the job that I'm supposed to do, and then eventually seeing you know let's try something else. So mm-hmm. I got some percussion ensemble arrangements published through Alfred where I did arrangements of Star Wars music. I did a Star Wars medley for xylophones, marimbas, uh, and whatnot. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like we took like the Darth Vader theme, the main theme, and the Force theme. Did like a, a little medley of that. How and random. Then I got, 
<laughs> it's you know, I just wanted to. Uh, that, I'm a huge Star Wars guy. Was that an idea that you had, or did they say, "Hey, we want you to do this"? It was my idea. Oh, that's I was cool. Actually, yeah, I was surprised that it, it wasn't there. Okay. Uh, and this was back uh, in 2012, 2013. And I was thinking about this. In my head, I thought, well, Disney just bought Star Wars. Star Wars is going to be back in the zeitgeist. And not that it ever left, but it's going to be back even harder mm-hmm. in the, you know, 20, the, the next few years. So I thought, well, I'm going to bank on some Star Wars music. Yeah. It's going to be popular. So that's cool. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. So I, I did that medley, and then I had this idea for a uh, big band version of the Cantina band theme, but with percussion ensemble. So there's, you know, there's kit, there's bass, and then there's marimba xylophone, and what bells, you know, glockenspiel. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did those arrangements, and and everything was going great. But I, I had that feeling again of, you know, I think I'm ready to do something else. Okay. And so that's when I started to learn about music supervision. Okay. So I was honestly just thinking about like, okay, well, I tried the film scoring thing. I was doing the arranging thing, but I, you know, I could do the arranging thing, but I wasn't sure how much more I, I could do. And I saw the title music supervisor on a movie. Now I, I never really noticed that title before, but I saw it and I kind of, you know, did a Google search and thought, oh, this guy just, or this guy or girl just chooses music. That's all they do. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Berkeley graduate. <laughs> this is easy. Like, I was made for this. Sure. <laughs> so I started to tell some of my alumni network people about this, and they said, let me connect you with some people who do this. And so I had a conversations with a bunch of people over the next month or so talking about what it meant, I didn't understand the difference between music supervision and music licensing. So every time I talked to a music licensing person and I said supervision, they would correct me and say, no, 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 not supervision. This is licensing. Right. And I, I didn't understand it at the time. I, I do now. But <laughs> so then I just started applying for things, just looking for coordinator jobs for anyone, whether it was a supervisor, whether it was a company. And I uh, started to take a class at UCLA. Uh, I wasn't looking to get a a degree, an extra degree or anything, but just to take any class that taught me more about supervision. So this was back in 2013. And Lindsay Wolfington and Jennifer Pikin taught the class. Now, Lindsay Wolfington, uh, she's she's a pretty big one. So is Jennifer Pikin for for music supervision. And so... I, th- I think it was during the first or second week of class, I got lucky and got a job as a music coordinator for a one-stop shop music company. Now, for those who don't know what a one-stop shop is, you, you might, but just to refresh your memory, what that means is this company represents both the master recording and the publishing. Mm-hmm. So the clearance process is very easy where I just go to this one company who can approve both sides and it's a relatively fast clearance process. Correct. So the way I got that job was interesting because I did not have any music business degrees. I had never worked in supervision before. But what I was able to demonstrate was, look, I have all this administrative experience working at Alfred Music Publishing. I also have experience you know, working for film composers, doing copies work and orchestrating. 
I feel that with my admin skills and my music knowledge that I think I could be a good fit for this. And the company I worked for was Heavy Hitters Music. And they they kind of just went for it and said, okay, let's try it. Nice. So, so that's when I first started getting to supervision. This was like, I want to say early 2013. And so what I was doing was I was helping pitch the music for the library to supervisors, doing searches. Uh, they'd say, we need you know, a jazz music for a cocktail hour scene. And I would go through our library and find some stuff. And I'd also talk with some of our writers and help them uh, by guiding them as to what kind of stuff we need written or just like some little sprinkle of ideas of like, oh, put a suspended symbol into the first chorus and then, you know, do a build from the bridge into the last chorus or do a stop here and that kind of stuff. So I, I did that for about a year and then within that year, I made some more music supervision connections and someone told me that Activision was looking for a music coordinator. Okay. And so that process was a bit of a crazy one because there were around like maybe 1,500 people that applied for that job. Activision being the video game company. Yes. 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 Uh, and so 1,500 were applying for the job on LinkedIn, but I was one of the five referrals that was recommended nice. to uh, to the people that were hiring. So I got lucky with that. And that's another networking thing where someone just knew my work ethic and knew what I could do. And so they recommended me and I just got lucky that I, I went through all the different stages of the interview and, and got the job. So when I got that job, that was like a whole new level of learning that yeah, I didn't know it was coming. So now I'm on the choosing side of the supervision world. I was on the pitching side before, but this side is where I'm looking at budgets. I'm looking at terms. I'm researching songs to find out where the splits are. And at the time we were relaunching Guitar Hero and we had to clear hundreds of songs. I think I cleared over 600 songs for yes. Guitar Hero. Wow. <laughs> which is a lot of administrative skills and spreadsheets. And it was a really great learning experience for me because I got really good at understanding the ASCAP site, BMI, CSAC, PRS, all of these uh, performing rights organizations. And just doing all this detective work that I really enjoyed because it, it, it taught me a lot where I got to the point where I could look at a song and tell you where it was. Wow. So is that... Um, was that a big learning curve but for both the coordinator and the supervision positions? Were those learning curves that were they steep or they was it fairly easy just because you already had some of the administration and uh, work ethic from previous jobs? You know, it was it was tough at first because I I kind of knew what I was doing. You know, I people helped me at work, but now I, I know my tricks where like, for example, you know, if it's a universal music publishing company on the ASCAP site, but it may not say it's universal, it may be like a different name, but if the address is the same as all these other addresses, like I, I know the universal address. Mm -hmm. um, so when I see that, I know that it's a universal publishing oh, company. Yeah. That's good. That's you clever. Know? Yeah. 
So over time, I didn't know that. So then I was just calling the numbers, just saying like, hi, I'm looking for such and such company. They say, oh, that's with Universal Publishing or, oh, that's with Sony ATV. So, you know, over time, I started to learn just by memory of the addresses. And then, you know, then there's the there's more companies within the publishing companies so that you just know like, oh, you see that name, that's with that company. And I would make all these little cheat sheets for myself so I'd remember everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an amazing experience just learning all these songs and realizing, you know, this writer is with this publisher, has always been with that publisher, or this band's with that label. And that wasn't really something I was looking up when I grew up. You know, I mean, I'm... I'm I'm 32 now and you know I was growing up in high school from like 2001 to 2005 and you know we had iTunes and I wasn't necessarily getting albums so this was information that wasn't that was provided to me it was just I like this song I like this band so mm-hmm. for some people they they're all about the labels or the publishers or whatnot but it just wasn't something I knew mm-hmm. so over time I I started to really understand what that meant Gotcha. Okay, so after Activision, you moved on to a company called Music and Strategy. So tell me more about uh, who they are and what they do. Sure. So Music and Strategy is a company that's hired by ad agencies or specific brands as a hired music department to help with clearance, uh, creative ideas, maybe even uh, you know negotiations or, or partnerships with certain musicians or celebrities or whatnot. So uh, you know, some companies have their own music department, but if some do not, they hire us uh, to help with all this stuff. So I was working with really big ad agencies creatively, as well as clearance. Uh, but the timelines of the ad agency is around the clock because they're, you know, you know, the structure of that stuff is like you have your main client and then the ad agency is working for that client. And then whoever the ad agency hires to get the job done, whether it's you know, studios that are filming it or producing it or, you know, music departments like us, we're all helping the ad agency satisfy the main client. So with all of that work, everyone's working around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to get things done. So there would be times where I would be told at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night uh, to say, hey, we need to get a solid quote for a song the next day by 11 a.m. When they say 11 a.m., that's East Coast time. So therefore, I need to get it done by 8 a.m. West Coast time, (laughs) which doesn't give me a ton of time. Yeah, really. So, you know, this is the type of stuff you have to do when you're working with ad agencies of just moving fast, thinking smart and fast, and just like having the experience of how to deal with this stuff. Wow. That's a lot of work in a very short amount of time. (laughs) <laughs> um, and you have to have yeah. the confidence to be able to to get that done. It's not for the weak hearted, it seems like. <laughs> no, no. You need to have not too many emotions. Right. <laughs> you kind of have to do a thick skin. A very thick skin and just go through it and, and get the job done, but do it in the safest and smartest way. And, you know, not leaving anything behind, just dotting all your I's, crossing your T's. And again, this comes from all the administrative work I'd done over the years of just being very careful about doing this work because it's, it's sensitive 
because you're you're negotiating with these people with a lot of money in different mm-hmm. terms and you just need to make sure everyone's on the same page yeah wow that's really cool and so uh so you you were with them for a while and then now you're back over at activision again is that correct Yes. Uh, so I was asked back to the company to take over as music supervisor. And I've been there for a little over a year now. And I handle all of the supervision for the trailers, uh, for in-game uses, for internal uses, anything that's music related for the company. I help with my counterpart, uh, Brandon Young, who's the director of music affairs. Gotcha. So when you're putting music into an Activision game, uh, are you accepting requests from people that send in music that are asking, hey, do you need music put in this game? Or do you have in-house composers that work on those things? Where do you get the music from typically that goes into a game? So it has to do with the needs of the developers that are making the game. Developers have a whole team of creatives. Uh, so so kind of to step back for a second. So Activision is technically a video game publisher. But we also own a lot of uh, video game developers that create the games for us. But they have whole teams of people that are the creatives or the directors of the game that have their ideas of what they want to do musically. Mm. So they may say, you know, if it's like a Call of Duty game, they may want like a certain genre or or whatnot and tell us like, hey, we kind of want to go after this kind of song. Or we're looking for a composer that writes in this style. And then we help kind of vet that stuff and figure out, you know, what will work best for them, show them some ideas. And if they're into it, then we we start the negotiations of, of who's going to work on our game. But with the in-game uses, it, it depends on the type of game we're making. If it's like a Guitar Hero or, you know, back in the day there was Tony Hawk, those are soundtrack games where you know, you're creating a whole soundtrack of, of songs that are being used either as background or with Guitar Hero, you're, you're playing those songs. But if you have a game like Call of Duty or Destiny uh, or Skylanders, those are adventure games that kind of lean more towards a score. Mm-hmm. So with that, we're, we're not necessarily going to use a song in the game. And you never know, we may, but those are leaning more towards the composers. So... so- who do you get the who does the composing for those types of games for you? It it depends. I mean, we we need someone who has experience with with big movies or big productions like this and so we'll work with different people who represent composers or people that have been recommended us by people we trust over time and then we kind of see what they can do, see if they can help us yeah. or so, if they're the right fit. So somebody can't email you just off of a web off the website or something like that and say hey i compose music can i send you some some music to can be considered for a game you want to go through people that have got experience and credits doing big name projects already because you trust who they are what they do correct yeah yeah it's it's a mix of that but it's also something that people don't always understand is Although I am the music supervisor, I am not the final say sure. in what gets done. I'm kind of the gatekeeper in what I can recommend. But you also need to make sure that not only the person above me likes your music, but maybe 10 other people above me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that same thing goes with the ad agency stuff. Basically, with any type of placement, you know, it would be amazing if it was just one person who made all the decisions. 
but you have directors and producers and you have relationships and all these different things where all these people need to be on board and not, not to discourage the fact that it's hard, but it is hard to get music and things, but with the right connections and the right people and the, just the right timing, it can happen. Yeah. It just, it takes time. Yeah. It all comes back to having relationships with people that trust you and know your work and what you do and can relate to you and get along with you. Uh, you know, those types of things. Again, uh, it just kind of all circles back to that conversation over and over. It seems like. Yeah, it's, it really is just all about the hang yeah. and, and, you know, having a, a good relationship with someone cause you want to trust them and you want to feel comfortable. And another thing I've, I've kind of stressed in, in some other talks that I've had has to do with the email that's being sent to me. Okay. Now, you know, when, when I'm working, like, you know, I wish my job was all about just listening to music, but there's plenty of other things I'm doing besides listening to music. And, and I'm busy with things that maybe even the common composer or songwriter doesn't understand that I do that as well when it comes to like processing invoices or setting up people in our system or talking about uh, agreements that we're creating. Like it's, it's a lot of things that I'm doing. So for example, if I get an email in the middle of the day, that's four paragraphs long with 10 different links, Mm. I'm not necessarily going to have time to read all of that. And it may, I may not want to read that. You kind of have to treat it like it's a first date. Or, or kind of like a hypothesis or, or just a summary yeah. where instead of listing all of your credentials, just make it short and sweet. Say, hey, my name's so-and-so. I noticed you do a lot of this in this game. This is what I do. Hopefully, you'll find it useful. You know, yeah. I'm not necessarily saying that that's the email that's going to get me to listen to the music. But in general, for people, you want to get to the point. There's no need to fill it with with stuff that we may not have time to read just get down to the nitty-gritty tell me what you do and maybe it'll work for me or someone else sure that's great and that's really good information for people to know that are listening that are wanting to get into either composing or writing music for video games or even for uh, tv and ads and commercials and those types of projects it really comes down to that email of how to contact you or someone else that's in your position short and sweet to the point be polite be kind and you know put like one or two links in you know one or two songs if if that's allowed let me ask you this do you ever say to somebody if somebody emails you and says i'm so and so and here's the information and here's a couple of links for you okay there's that email and then there's also the email of hi i'm so and so this is what i do would it be okay if i were to send you a link or two of some songs that i do um and, and put it that way do you, you respond to one or the other better or does it matter to you um to be honest i don't i don't know which is better or not i mean do you, uh, do you respond to either of those it depends on the, the timing. Sure. Um, or what you're doing during you know, the day. Yeah. I mean, if I'm super busy uh, with other stuff and it, it's just not on the top of mind, I may just move on. And, and you know, and, and that's not like, it's no offense to anyone. It's just yeah, the, the job that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because not everyone understands that. 
with, with, with the type of stuff we're doing. And as much as I would love to listen to music, there's just other things going on. Sure. It's worked for me both ways. I've been able to say, hey, would it be okay for me to send you a song or two to certain people? And they're like, yeah, that's great. No no problem. Go ahead and do that. Some people have been, I've said, hey, you know who I am. This is what I do. Here's a couple of tracks that I think fit along the lines of what you're already working on with some other projects. And they respond back. This is great. Thank you so much. I'll hold on to it. Um, and then some, some of them, I know that they have listened to the songs because I get emails from the uh, server that I'm on. When I send music out, I send a link. It gives me an email back saying someone has listened to your song and or it says so-and-so has listened to the song. And so I know that they've downloaded the song and they're holding on to it. They, they may not respond to me in the email and say anything, but I know that they've downloaded the song. And they've got it in a folder. And sometimes that's right. all you need to know is that they've they've least at least been kind enough to download it and put it into a folder for future use potentially. <laughs> that's a lot right. right there. And I think it also depends on the type of supervisor you're reaching out to and the type of games that they're working on or or just the medium that they're working in. I feel from my discussions with different supervisors. Not to say that I don't want to hear new music, but I feel that TV and movie supervisors are always trying to collect new music just to be ready with stuff on the back burner. Sure. Because they're sometimes they're trying to break something or they just want to have a whole library of certain genres just so they're ready at any time. Yeah. Uh, in my case, I don't always need that just because with some of the games that we work on, there's just very specific genres that we're working with where if someone has country music, that's not necessarily going to work for me with the type of games that I work in yeah. uh, or the type of trailers I'm doing. And, and I feel that most people need to really understand that if you're going to pitch music, you need to understand what the product is right? and not just hope that the genre you do is going to fit. That's just like, that's a real guessing game to just like, or just, that's a big assumption to think that you can just send whatever genre because you don't want to waste your time either, you know? And you definitely don't want to waste your time because if we send you something that we know you're not working on, or have no idea that it makes no sense, you know, yeah. Country music in a video game is pretty, I'm sure pretty rare, but hard rock or hip hop or, you know, something like that or scoring that music is used in all kinds of stuff, you know? So if I'm going to send you something, it's got to be in, I got to do my research to find out what you're working on to begin with or what you have worked on in the past, at least, you know, so that if I send you something, it's got to be relatable to some degree, uh, at least be in the ballpark, you know? Right. And that's why I'm saying like, you know, you don't want to waste your own time because like you said, you have to do that research to understand that yeah, uh, or else you're just wasting energy to, yeah. to just send whatever you have. Sure. Well, real quick, uh, what are some tips or practical advice that you would give to listeners that are wanting to get into either uh, maybe they want to be a music supervisor or a music coordinator, or even on the, the copyist or, you know, production editor type of jobs. What are a couple of tips and tricks that you would say to get your foot in the door with these people? Or how do they, how do they make that first step into those things that you're working, you've worked in before? Yeah. I mean, uh... Every job I've had has kind of led me into the next one. Mm-hmm. I'd say getting administrative skills down is very important to become a coordinator in the future. 
um, you know, knowing how to use Microsoft Word and Excel, knowing how to write an email, knowing how to spell words. I know this may sound ridiculous, but it's true. Like you need to be able to do this clearly in order to be a coordinator. Because when you're writing to people, requesting music or requesting rights and this and that, you need to know how to type out emails and have templates and be organized and have spreadsheets that have the status of, of where we are in the process. Are mm -hmm. we waiting for quotes? Are we waiting to pay these people? You know, do we have a fully executed agreement? Uh, you just need to be very organized. And by starting off in, in a job that's maybe not a music coordinator, just any job that's an administrative job, uh, that'll give you the skills. And then over time, maybe you'll find an administrative job at a music place that you could eventually move up to the coordinator and then maybe the supervisor in the future. Gotcha. Um, so I just feel like by having those, you know, standard human skills of administrative work, that's going to help you in the long run. And it's all a waiting game. It's all, it all comes back to the, the networking with your contacts and making sure that you're a valid person that someone uh, will vouch for you to get into these positions. Sure. Yeah. That's great information. And thank you for sharing all of that. I know there's so much more we could do and talk about and go <laughs> even deeper into it. And I'd love to do it, but I know you've got things to do and I don't want to keep you, but uh, I want to thank you so very much for your time and coming on and talking with me and our, and our listeners, uh, you know, about what you have done and really cool things too. I mean, things that we don't, like I said, we don't think about choral production editor would not have even crossed my mind until you said it, but obviously, <laughs> yes, somebody has to do that job. Right. You know, so that's, that's fantastic. And I know you also, you do drumming uh, with some different bands. And so, you know, you're doing music supervision and you're drumming for bands and you're, you know, you're doing two or three things at once. And part of the process of this, of this show is letting people know that they can make a living in the music industry through multiple streams of income. It's not always one thing or maybe even just two things, but sometimes it's three, four or five things that you have to do put together that allow you to make a living full time at it, which is what I do. I do, you know, seven, eight, nine different things um, throughout the week and over the months that allow me to do this full time. Yeah. It's not just one or two things. You, you can't do that anymore. Hardly. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'll, I'll kind of leave you with this because this is kind of like my my main thing that I think about with this stuff. You know, when you're trying to get into the music industry, uh, whether you're trying to be a songwriter or a performer or a supervisor, there are times where you may have to do a job that's not in the music industry. And that's OK. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if there's a job that you can do during the day, uh, or however your schedule is, that will allow you to do the job you need to do during the day and then do the thing you love to do at night, that's okay. You can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually you may find that the night job in music or your, your passion starts to be more profitable than your day job. And you might be able to leave the day job. Sure. Or you might be able to keep that day job forever and get your benefits and then do everything else you need to do at night. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you may not want to blend your day job with your passion. You never know. It, it just depends on, on what you're doing. Yeah. And so to kind of go to that point as well, I'm, I'm lucky that my day job is related to music and my night job is related to music. But at the same time, it can kind of be a little overwhelming to do so many different 
skills where mm-hmm. doing supervision during the day, drumming at night, the times in between I'm writing music or other times I'm, you know, uh, music directing one of the bands I'm in. And so there was a time where I was doing a lot of playing and I wish I was writing more or I was writing a lot and I wasn't playing enough. And I said to one of my mentors, you know, I'm really nervous because I love everything I do and I get excited about each thing, but sometimes I, I want to do one more than the other. And I just know I have no idea how to balance it all. Like how, how can I be satisfied? Mm-hmm. And she said, think about it like this. Every single thing you love to do can be in a pie chart. And you think of each slice of pie as something you're doing. Like, let's say for the month of September, I'm playing maybe 30% of the time. And then (laughs) there's like 70% left. So let's say 30% playing. And then you got 20% writing. So that's 50%. And then maybe you were doing something else that wasn't music related for another portion and another portion. It may be breaking down where some things are maybe 2% of your month. Even though it could be 1% that you're playing that month, you're still doing it. Right. It's not gone. It's still part of your life. So maybe sure. that next week or that next month, you're going to raise the performance up to maybe 60%. And then the play, the the composing goes down to a smaller percentage. But as long as everything's still in that pie chart, then you're still considered what you are. You know, you're not not a a performer if you're not performing in October. Right. Of course. You know, or you're only doing one gig that month. You're still doing it. It's just you had a priority for something else. Sure. And yeah, that makes total sense. And for those people that are, you know, they're slowly working their way into it. You know, they get to do some music here and there and they're working some other job. And over time, you know, just like you and me, something else comes along, another opportunity. Now they got a couple of things that they're doing in music. So the other, the outside job is a little, a little less. And then it keeps building and building a little more and more and more until eventually, if that's what you're wanting to do, you know, then you've got full, full-time income doing a few different things musically. And, you know, if that's what you desire and if it's not, then that's fine. But, you know, that's what we're, uh, that's what we're here for is to help people know that they can do it and to encourage them, you know, give them the skills to be able to do so and the information they need to go forward to find those things out. So, man, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and for your time and sharing your expertise again. Um, it's been great learning more about you and getting to know you better. And, um, Hopefully we'll eventually get to meet each other in person at some point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someday, I'm sure we will. And um, yes. so blessings to you on all that you're working on and getting Thanks to be a Mark. part of. I think that's just a cool, cool gig that you get to have, man, being music supervisor, Activision and, you know, getting to work on movies and things like that. It's just super cool. So I'm grateful to know you and to build a friendship with you and relationship and, um, it's been, been really cool getting to, to talk with you. And I, I do want to know more about the magician stuff. <laughs> so we'll, we'll figure that out. Maybe have you back on later to talk more about that on a different podcast sure. or something. So. Sounds good. And, and thank you for doing this. You know, this is definitely something that just needs to be out there that, you know, I'm, I'm going to quote your title. Like, yeah, you can make a living in music, but it's a long con and it's going to take time. It does. And, you know, stories like this is what, you know, learning about how like it's not all music 
24-7. It's hard work. It's stuff that's, you know, you didn't expect to do, but it all leads to something and it, it means something in the future. It may not feel that way while you're doing it, or you just need to kind of take it from a different point of view and say, well, how can this help me in the future? And hopefully it does. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, everyone has different experiences and, and I'm excited to hear what everyone else has to say. That's cool. Well, man, I appreciate it once again. Have a great day and we'll talk to you again soon sometime. You too. Take care, Marty. Thank you guys so much for joining us today in our conversation with Eric Calvert. I hope you learned so much about orchestration and music supervision and all the different facets of the industry that he has been a part of. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consultation services via phone, FaceTime, or Skype. Be sure to let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.